Hello and welcome to Future Thinking with Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Brand Engagement and Multimedia Strategy at Stylus. In this episode, we're going to be discussing how to create a culture of inclusion and how to be a better leader in these challenging times. To discuss this, I'm joined by Christina Blacken, public speaker, performer, host of the podcast Sway Them in Colour, and founder of leadership development and communication consultancy, The New Quo. And I'm also joined by Julia Ehrens, editor of Pop Culture and Media here at Stylus. Welcome to you both. So first of all, Christina, could you tell us a bit about The New, the new Quo, um, why you set it up and what your aims are? Well, The New Quo started out as a media platform a couple of years ago as a side project for me because I was really frustrated with what I was seeing in the media for particularly black entrepreneurship. I knew there were all these cool statistics of what was happening, what was changing, but no one was covering it. So I started to do articles about really in interesting and innovative creators. And then that eventually evolved into consulting and workshops around the idea that story is our most powerful tool for behavior change, for building positive culture. And it came from my own need of seeing, as a black woman operating in corporate America, how much dominant narratives created inequity, created issues and disengagement within companies. So I kind of did it as on my own whim and, and through my own experiences of certain pains. And now at this point, I've taught 445 business leaders in workshops, webinars, retreats, really about the power of narrative to disrupt bias, to be able to connect with people not like yourself, and ultimately to hopefully change the narrative on issues that we have um, that we're facing today. So... Uh, at the core of your strategy, I, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is this idea of narrative intelligence. Could you explain what you mean by that and how it's a useful approach for, for business leaders? I actually stumbled across this term when I was speaking to a friend who's in the tech world about what I do. And he was like, you know, you're talking about narrative intelligence, right? This idea that every single one of us are storytellers and understanding how narratives work, how they affect psychology, and ultimately how they drive our behavior is narrative intelligence. A lot of us have natural innate narrative intelligence because human brains are wired to perceive the world through narrative, but it seems innocuous because we're doing it without thinking about it. So narrative intelligence is really how do you improve and understand how a narrative can influence somebody else's thinking, what narratives from your own upbringing, your childhood, your social conditioning, pretty much influence how you think and act now, and how can you use narrative more effectively to get to an end goal? And right now, interestingly enough, narrative intelligence is talked about a lot in the AI world, so for artificial intelligence, because they're trying to make robots think and act more like humans. And that's cool and all, and I think that, you know, there's validity in that, but there could be so much more power in getting people to be conscious of narrative, of how it operates in the world, and which ones that they're, they're leading and essentially being influenced by, especially because 50% of all of our daily activities are unconscious and on autopilot. So when you eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's for breakfast, it's because it's unconscious half the time. And I think being conscious of narrative and how it drives us is incredibly important if we're going to solve the inequities that we see and also get people to be completely tapped into the power that they potentially have. Well, that's an interesting point there. I mean, how does this um, uh, feed into the, 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 the desire for change and uh, structural change when it comes to things like inequity and racial equality? How do you go, around, go about um, uh, restructuring that with this idea of, of narrative intelligence? I think people pulled me to first understand a term I've coined called the culture of autopilot. So there are all these narratives that we ingest from history, education, our politics, our business practices that we see as immutable truths. And all of these truths are based and, and created from inequity. And until we recognize those narratives, 
So for example, who should be leaders? Should it be men? Should it only be white men? Who should have certain resources? Who innately is seen as inferior? All these narratives are embedded into people's thinking and their belief systems very early on in, in their upbringing. And so we have to uncover what those are. And we're seeing that right now during the pandemic. There are some narratives like infinite growth is the only thing that we should pursuing within companies and organizations. That is just not true. And in fact, it's led to so many problems that we have right now. And so questioning dominant narratives is critically important. And if we don't get to the root of them, we can't change the behavior that leads to inequity. So if we don't know which narratives we're, we're upholding as factual, as the immutable thing, we can't change anything. And I think there are a lot of fear-based, scarcity-based narratives that people are driven by making decisions by, which are leading to the inequities that we see. And people are frustrated. I've actually seen so many movements here in the U.S. right now on social media where people are saying, hey, my leadership, they're racist as hell. They're sexist as hell. They have these issues and these problems and we are not going to take it anymore. We're tired of being mistreated. We have nothing to lose. There's 40 million people unemployed. So what can we do to change the narrative around what is really genuinely equitable leadership? What does it take to actually build a company that's truly innovative and takes all the perspectives of everybody and actually sees that as a gift and as an opportunity for innovation instead of a threat to the status quo. So I think those are critical things we have to do if we're going to change any of the racial or inequity issues that we see. So do you yeah. think it's that the idea of like replacing the concept of leadership, which is so much defined, defined by dominance, right? You know, your line manager and your political leadership, and it's always about oppression and keeping sort of the weakened masses down and instead approaching with an idea of empathy and mutual knowledge and actually just bringing everybody to the however large proverbial table. Absolutely. I mean, some of our dominant narratives around leadership are exactly about inequity, which is how do you dominate? How do you withhold resources? How do you withhold information? How do you make sure that some people have access and some don't? And if we change those, what would happen? If it was about collaboration, if it was about you know ownership and buy-in from multiple types of people, if it was about how do we actually have every person have a seat at the table and actually bring their best talents and their diverse skills and their diverse thinking and backgrounds to innovate on these problems. I think one reason why we have so much stagnation when it comes to innovation is because of that. We're not innovating in the ways that we could. I think a lot of the, even in the futurism space and the innovation space, it's tired and it's routine and people are coming up with the same five ideas. Like, look at these drones. I'm like, okay, great. We have so many other issues to solve in the world. We don't need another similar pitch about things that people don't really need and not really serving in these bigger ways. And that's why I think there are some really interesting and new narratives around like Afrofuturism or mm. libertarian design, which is this idea of liberatory design actually takes a completely different critical lens to how you build and it builds for people from the margins first so that everybody's included from the get-go it's not like this reactive put a band-aid on when you're designing something so i'm excited about that how do we get people to understand that Re removing and reducing certain narratives doesn't mean that it's going to get worse it actually gives us an opportunity to improve and to be better and to imagine a future that we can't really see right now so sort of a more grassroots and less lionizing the one tall, usually very white male puppy. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's sort of this idea of, you know, collaborative. There's a term called transformational leadership, and it's really the concept of leadership is about seeing the, the opportunity in people and bringing them to their fullest capabilities and bringing them to their fullest talents. And that's what a good leader does. They're able to say, like, oh, you're really great at this, and you're great at that, and we'll align everybody on a particular goal that's motivating and engaging and mutually beneficial to everyone 
And that's leadership that actually can improve and create in ways that we aren't doing right now. Right now we have leaders that are like, I'm scared. How do I keep the status quo the same? How do I keep everyone around me that looks exactly the same as me, thinks exactly the same as me, and just maintain my tiny little island of safety as the chaos and everything else is burning and falling around? It's just not going to be an efficient way to address some of the very pressing and salient issues in the world. Yeah, I mean, the, one thing I'd like to ask you, I mean, obviously, you, you, ha- you probably work with people for whom this is quite challenging, but I imagine you also work for people who believe that they are um, doing the right thing, but are probably still working with unconscious biases that you can uncover. Um, what's the reaction there? I mean, the, the, this learning process must be quite revelatory for, for many of the, of the business leaders you work with. That's a great question. I actually did a podcast episode recently about that called You Don't Get an Impression Pass Just Because You're Liberal. And it's the idea that many people do hold very liberal, equitable values, but they don't necessarily express those things, nor do they understand how they participate in systems of inequity around them. And so I think the first step is understanding that you're not a bad person for having biases or not seeing certain things or having context. You're a bad person if you refuse to do the work, if you refuse to have any kind of acknowledgement and awareness. So I think once people understand that we all have those fallacies, we all have these ways that we stumble, but we can continuously learn and improve, then those individuals actually see that, oh, there is a way that I can close this gap between the values that I hold and the things that I actually do. I think also some of this is also a result of our education system. Our education system is purposely... Um, missing a lot of information about culture and social justice and the issues that we faced. For example, in the U.S., there are a lot of people who were like, I never heard about um, Black Wall Street. And I didn't know that it got burned down. I never heard about the Tulsa riots. I never heard about, these are actual factual parts of history mm. that get completely left out. And so a lot of people don't, I call it historical amnesia. Like you can't know what you don't know. And it's like people wake up and they don't know what happened for the last 70 years in this country, in policy, in leadership, in practice. And so how could they understand that they're on a conveyor belt passively moving forward and not realizing how that conveyor belt was even created? So I think that education is important and knowing you may not have built the system, but you benefit from it. And mm-hmm. so the only way to dismantle it is to understand how it was built. It's really interesting because um, just growing up in Germany for obvious reasons and things that my people have done in the past hundred or so years intensely, um, we have a lot of educational system built on so this entire idea of like the German word is Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which is like coming to terms with one's past. And it's a concept that you're not, it's not your fault it happened, but it's your responsibility to make sure it never happens again. But then what's interesting and challenging in Germany right now is exactly what you say. It's really hard to talk about racism in Germany because even just using the word race due to like that cultural background is perceived as like it's bad to talk about race even. Like I feel like Germany keeps striving for this idea of color blindness, which is so harmful in its own ways. And and it's just so difficult to even start these conversations because it's really hard to not knock on against the sort of black and white perception of you're either a racist or you're a perfect flawless being. And that's the acknowledgement of the grayscale doesn't really exist yet. Yeah, that's such a great point. I love that word. We need a word like that in the English language of like, come to terms with yourself. Like you can't know unless you take responsibility. And I teach this in my unconscious bias trainings around colorblindness is lazy. I think there's this idea that it will solve problems because if I don't see race, then there won't be an issue. We're all the same. And the issue with that is it erases heritage. 
and it erases culture and it tells people you're okay if you're the same as me you're okay if you don't make me uncomfortable and that isn't a solve i think a solve is saying i see your difference i love that afro i love that you have blue eyes i love that you come from this region and you have this culture this food and that excites me it doesn't threaten me it doesn't intimidate me and i accept the difference so it's the difference or the issue isn't acknowledging difference is how we respond to difference and colorblindness is lazy and it's erasure versus how do we actually work through genuinely accepting and not just tolerating difference so i understand the angle which is a sort of utopia but the utopia still is racism of itself because it's a utopia where people have to be homogenous and conform to be accepted it's also it's breaking it down to like the personal horizon which of course like you know the political starts in the personal but you know, you may have, as you said in your podcast, you know, a black friend, but that doesn't mean that that black friend hasn't experienced massive systemic oppression yeah. throughout every other dimension in their lives. And just because you happen to treat them with kindness does not then erase their experience. So just anything happens outside of your horizon. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. And that's when the colorblindness angle isn't workable at the moment, probably. Absolutely. And there's still so many systems of power that are intricately tied to racial policy. I mean, especially in the U.S., we've had a very long history that still to this day, it's not that long ago. I mean, my grandmother lived through segregation. She's 70. She's not, it's not like she's 200 years old and it's like, oh, it was so long ago. It's like, that was really part of her, her childhood. And I think that's the part that people have a hard time grappling with is this wasn't long ago that we had explicit practices based on what you look like that disenfranchised millions of people for very long periods of time. So we have to really acknowledge that, work through it and understand the power that comes from being able to accept difference in a new way. And until we do that, we'll, we'll continue to have these issues. And so that's why I think some people, it, it creates discomfort, but without the discomfort, we can't grow. It's like working out. When you work out, it hurts sometimes, right? You're like, you're straining, your muscles are sore. But then the day after you have those endorphins, your muscles feel like stronger. That's what a lot of this is. We can't stay in comfort and complacency if we want to make changes. You have to have some discomfort. There is a something going on right now in terms of culture coming to terms with with the past and 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 trying to deal with mistakes you might say in the past. Julia, you've written about this in terms of HBO and Gone with the Wind, and we've oh, yeah. seen it. We've seen it with the the Aunt Jemima uh, issue. I mean, what is um, what are your thoughts on this in terms of it? It, it, it becomes in the media a flashpoint for the culture wars, obviously. Um, but if we look at it in a bit more of a nuanced way, there are clearly um, there are clearly things to be to be done in terms of educating those who might not know about you know the attitudes of the past. So, is is this a good move, or is it going to fuel more you know anger from the wrong kinds of people? That's a really um, good question. I mean, there was this funny <laughs> social media post, I think it was on Twitter, and it was saying, Black people say, hey, we want the police to stop killing us. And people were like, great, we're going to remove Golden Girls because they had that one episode of Blackface or whatever they're claiming is Blackface. And people are like, but what about the police? So there's all these actions that are, you know, they are definitely important because there's symbolism and it's narrative in and of itself to have these sort of racist tropes that need to change but it's not addressing the structural issues. And that's what people are saying. They're like, we want you to take away the billions of dollars that we put into policing and harming people and put it into communities. I mean, people in the United States keep claiming, well, if we don't have police, what will happen? Look at, suburb look at the suburban neighborhoods. Suburban neighborhoods are not over-policed. They put tons of money into schooling. 
into resources and education, and they don't have to even worry about policing issues because they stop at the root of the problem. So it's sort of how do we take structural things and solve them versus just the performative symbolism and logos and statements. And I think that's what people sometimes get frustrated with because there's a performance and a facade and wanting to get the positive halo effect of saying, hey, we care about black people. And it's like, sure, do you? Like, what does your management circle look like? What does your hiring practices look like? What are your production practices? That matters far more than a performative post or a change of a name on a bottle. And so I think people are making fun of that because it's like, we're asking for tangible specific things and people are responding with stuff that feels a bit more superficial or not really on the mark. And I think we're closing the gap with that. I mean, Netflix just came out and I might be quoted wrong here, but they were saying they're going to, to donate, I think a hundred million dollars to like black creators and, and contribute very specific tangible monetary funds to changing media. And the people are like, this is what we're talking about. Like commit, mm. put your money where your mouth is, commit to changing systems of inequity, invest in t- changing those things and don't just change a logo or say, you know, all Black Lives Matter, and then that's it. Julia, the, something the... like a logo change, oh, sorry, just a tiny aside. I think, you know, once you commit to taking that, so whatever, the solution definitely can't be, again, coming back to dealing with your past. It's not just, oh, we're yanking it off the bottle and that's it. It's, it basically comes down to, okay, this is the very visible symptom of the issue we've had with our company for the last 120 years. So now we're going to take you through the process of us actually, you know, working through how this came to be in our structures and how we can change any such decisions to, you know, happen in the future and actually create an environment that is much more conducive to having, you know, the right sort of presence in our leadership and actually have the right voices to communicate what it is that we are trying to say to our audience. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, so much of the argument around this is, 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 fueled by the fact that most people just see the Twitter post or the, the, the story in the news and actually it'd be much more helpful if the process was you know more open and transparent and and that narrative is interesting in itself right I mean the problem here is that bands aren't telling stories well enough I guess we come back to the initial point they're making statements and being somewhat performative but they're not telling an uh, authentic story about change yeah I mean imagine if you know, I went out to the subway and licked the subway pole and I got sick and all I did was take NyQuil and I just kept looking at the subway pole. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not fixing the problem. Like, yeah, NyQuil will help me feel a little bit better, but it's not going to stop me from getting sick. And I think that's the same thing with these sorts of situations where it's like companies, we love that you're taking the symptom and you're starting to address that, but we also need you to talk about the root. There's values and there's practices that led to that symptom. If you don't address that, why is anything going to change? And so that's what people are asking for. And it's not a hard ask. I mean, some of the things people are saying, which is invest in, you know, a diverse employment, develop that talent, have them involved in decision making. Those aren't crazy asks. I mean, this is definitely something that should have already been happening. So I'm glad that companies at least are waking up. They're realizing that there is repercussions to not doing those things. And hopefully this change in consciousness will continue, especially because I'm from Ogden, Utah. It's a kind of rural place. It's very homogenous. It's mostly white, mostly Mormon. I saw people during the Black Lives Matter movement out protesting and and protecting Black bodies, and that's never happened in my 32 years of life. So I'm like, there's something shifting here where there's a more in-depth consciousness, and I think we have an opportunity to make genuine change because of it. Well, fantastic. I feel like that's a a good optimistic hopeful place for us to 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 end this conversation um i i think that that it's um 
I hope that this is going to be something which will carry on long term and that brands and, and the people that are listening to this at the, uh, right now who are working with brands and working in leadership positions, um, I, I hope there was insight there that you can take away right now and use and, and try and make you know real uh, meaningful change. So thank you very much. I'd like to thank my guests, Christina Blacken and Julia Ahrens. And thank you for listening and watching if you're watching. Please join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.